There is a story told about the great Rabbi Hirsch who was laying on his hospital bed and his congregants and family were sitting close by waiting to hear what they believed to be his dying words, feeling that his end was near. The rabbi's attendant, a man named Yitzi, takes a cup of milk that was by the rabbi's bedside and heads outside to his car and he fills it with some schnapps and steals it back into the hospital. Here, Rabbi Yitzi says, drink this, it'll be good for you. The rabbi takes a sip of the milk and his eyes suddenly pop wide open. He clears his throat and he motions for everyone to come forward. Listen carefully, he says, to what I'm about to tell you. No matter what, don't sell that cow. <laughs> this morning I have a cow for you. Years back, I bought a book that surveyed a series of historical events that asked what if this or that didn't happen. For example, what if in the 13th century in Europe hadn't been overwhelmed with an early spring? What if that winter had been like the long frozen ones before and the long frozen ones after, instead of being filled with mud that made it impossible for horses to move through it? If it had been like all the other frozen winters before, Vienna would have been invaded by the Mongols. European history changes. There's no Mozart. Gutenberg doesn't invent the printing press. Galileo doesn't see the sun as the center of the universe. Simply said, the ideas and things that make us who we are, they don't ever exist. We don't exist. This genre is called alternative history, and it's a story of what if. What if this happens instead of that, or that instead of this? It warns us about making assumptions about things, of the way that things are, because we think that that's the way they are supposed to be. Listen, the point is perhaps best captured every time you see people taking their cell phones out. Almost immediately, everyone, actually, no one ever holds their cell phone and says, this is the most remarkable thing that has ever been developed. You stand there and you look at your phone and you say, oh, it's so slow. Why is it not loading? It's not working. And then like you're saying to yourself, like, give it a second. Like it's coming from space and back. The speed of light isn't fast enough for you. And there was a time when the, you, there was no such thing as your phone. There was a phone on a wall, and that's where you went to. Or maybe there was a table. That's where the phone was. The story of what if is also the story about things that we take for granted. Because nothing is inevitable, and we are not destined, but we are profoundly fortunate. So maybe it's not surprising that the entire what if genre was made famous by two Jews. Philip Dick, who among many books wrote the story that became Blade Runner, and Philip Roth. And not surprisingly, both of their books asked the same what-if question. What if Hitler had won? Philip Dick imagined an America that was divided in half. The West Coast was Japanese, the East Coast was German. Philip Roth imagined that a world where Franklin Roosevelt had lost his re-election in 1940 to Charles Lindbergh, the famous air pilot, flaming anti-Semite and Nazi sympathizer, 
who actually flirted with running for presidency in 1939. In his story, Roosevelt loses, Lindbergh places American Jews into controlled areas and refuses America to enter the war in Europe. England collapses and is invaded by Germany and all of Europe becomes Nazi Europe and North America's Jews are fated for their destruction. Now you might think this is a fictional stretch. Think again. In Germany, 30 minutes outside of Berlin is their version of Muskoka. A pastoral, bucolic lakeside summer retreat called Wannsee. Its shores are spotted with magnificent summer homes of Berlin's elite. The great German-Jewish painter Max Lieberman had a home there. The Siemens family, the Siemens Industrial Empire, they all have their summer homes there. Klaus Stauffenberg, who had attempted to assassinate Hitler, made famous by Tom Cruise in the movie Valkyrie, has an ancestral home there too. But Wannsee is most known for the infamous conference that was held there in 1942 by the Nazi regime where they decided finally on the final solution to the Jewish problem. Today, there is a conference house, is now a museum, and there, if you look closely amongst the mountains of horrible information, is that the Nazis collected Jewish population numbers, not just of Germany and not just of Europe and not just of Britain. They had the numbers of Jews living in America and Canada broken down by states and provinces, cities and towns. This past summer, my wife Lisa and I went to Europe, but not to its great cities. Instead, we walked the beaches of Normandy, where 167,000 young men stormed straight into guns that they thought had been bombed out but weren't, where parachutists dropped earlier behind lines, had missed their targets not by hundreds of feet but by miles, where clouds had prevented better air coverage and suddenly the nightmare of what if didn't seem too far-fetched. The military cemeteries at those beaches are a reminder of the price paid in human life to prevent that from happening. And here and there, in and amongst the crosses, you'll find a Magin David, a reminder of the 4,000 Jews who stormed those beaches and died. Some of them actually soldered among Gain Davids onto their dog tags, or they painted Star of Davids onto their helmets or on the backs of their uniforms. They knew what they were fighting for. And as I walked this enormous landscape of death, I was reminded of the story of the ancient rabbis told about Joseph who after being gifted with a colorful coat is thrown into a pit by his brothers and left to die. Of course, we know the story doesn't end there with him dying in the pit. Joseph is discovered and sold off into the Egyptian slave market. And like the story of the male boy who becomes the CEO, Joseph becomes second in command only to Pharaoh over the entire Egyptian empire. And those same rabbis tell of Joseph that many years later in his life, of going back to that very same pit where it all could have ended and standing there Joseph alone in that moment he recited a bracha he recited a blessing teaching us to look back to understand what could have been 
and what to be grateful for. The truth is, the story of what if for most people is a fantasy play. So Gutenberg doesn't build a printing press. All right, we don't have books. Galileo never polishes his telescope lens. All right, we don't know the universe is expanding. But standing there on those beaches, asking what if Hitler had won, opens a dark place in our minds. Know this. Lots of Jews say, we know before there was a state of Israel, there was a Holocaust. But that is way too simple. In the 12th century, in the French city of Blois, unfolded an attack against the city's Jews, which by itself was not remarkable. But this time it was done with the consent of the government and its support. And it sent shockwaves throughout the Jewish world. At the same time, one of Europe's great centers of Jewish life was the city of Rouen in Normandy, two hours by car from Blois. Better known in Jewish texts as Radom, it was a thriving center where more than 20% of the city were populated by Jews. And as we walk through its streets this summer, beneath those streets is the story of synagogues and yeshivot, a Jewish quarter. And then in that same 12th century, it all disappears. Researchers believe that the Jews of Rouen fled to England and became the seed of Britain's Jewish community, which didn't last very long either, because a hundred years later, King Edward I threw them out. And decades after begins the first series of pogroms that laid waste to Germany's Jewish communities, which was the center of Jewish life in Europe. If you ever wondered why Jews ended up living in Poland and in Russia, it was because they were escaping those massacres in Germany, which is to say that the sequential story of Jewish life told over and over again is of settlement, prosperity, and then destruction. The deaths of hundreds of thousands of Jews because they were helpless with no power and no means of defense. Knowing that enables us to understand what if Israel didn't exist? So when we talk about what it is not to have in Israel, by default we think about Germany. But the story is more than that. When people read the story of Anne Frank and visit her house in Amsterdam, they think it's only the story of a Jewish girl who dies in Auschwitz. But there is more to it. The deeper story is, despite having a wealthy family in America with connections to the White House, they couldn't get her out of Europe which was true for millions of other Jews who begged to go anywhere. But as the old joke says, they needed to find another globe to find a country that would take them in. And remember that in Canada and America, there were no mass Jewish protests against the zero immigration policies of their governments. Do you know why? Because we were afraid we were afraid of being labeled disloyal, afraid of being tossed out, and later in the war, people, when they knew what was happening, and yet we did what Jews long did learn to master. Captain in one of Freud's most famous Jewish jokes. Freud tells a story like this. There are two Jews about to be executed by a firing squad, and they're told to put blinders on. 
One of them says, I don't want your lousy blindfold. And the second Jew leans over and whispers, take the blindfold, don't make trouble. <laughs> Remember that Israel allows you to make trouble. And when people talk about Israel today, and they agree or disagree with the protests, agree or disagree with this policy or that policy, like the government, don't like the government. In doing so, we completely miss the point. Because this government or that government is not Israel. And in any event, you love someone and something even when you don't always approve of what they do. And I realize that for some young people, this might not be an easy message to hear, if only because they have no idea what being Jewish was before Israel existed, and also because they are young. Life is always simple when you're young. There's black and white, bad and good, right and wrong. But age gives us wisdom to see things in ways we could not see them earlier. Not having an Israel is to return to a deep and sure reality subject to the cruel winds of other people. Because for 2,000 years, Jews lived precarious lives. And without it, it is to return and be as Kafka once said, that Jews are threatened by threats. That is what Israel is. Which takes me to what I really want to say this morning to the cow we cannot sell. Over 30 years of being a rabbi, there have been many things that I have seen and much that I have spoken to and cared for, projects needing attention and problems that, needing problems that need to be solved, but nothing, and I mean not any of them, comes close to the real, essential what if of this morning. What if there are no more Jews? Because a world without Jews, like a world without Israel, is a horrifying thought. This is a question for people who think that Jewishness is something optional. It challenges the idea that building a family with Jewish children, while nice, isn't essential, and leaves bewilderment to people who disavow particularism of being a Jew in favor of universalism. It must be understood what they're leaving behind. At the end of the Torah, we are told, Ki ma'at amim, saying that God chose the Jews because we were few. Most nations, from the ancient to the most modern, believed that strength and power were signs of chosenness and destiny. But the Jews always saw it differently that God chose a people whose numbers accounts for an infinitesimally small number of all humans on account of what we aren't. Today, 15 million Jews from a population of 8 billion human beings account for less than a quarter of 1% of all breathing humans alive. We are a statistical error. And by all reason, it shouldn't matter if we exist or we don't, but it does. From the outside, the Jews are the most unlikely choice for God's blessing. But that's God's way. God chose an aged, infertile couple 
to be the grandparent to the Jewish people. God chose a man who could not speak to tell Pharaoh to set his people free from Egypt. And he chose the smallest of all people to play the largest of roles. God choosing the least of all people is assigned the world is not what most people think it is. Strength is not in the powerful, but in how the impossible survives and thrives. So what is there to lose? What is there to lose if there is an end to us? Alan Dershowitz tells the story of being invited to Hamburg, Germany as the guest of the Bar Association. There were about a thousand or so people there in attendance. He spoke for a while on human rights and then he went off script. He asked how many people in the room regard themselves as having been victims of the Shoah. Of the thousand, six or seven people raised their hand, a Jew or two amongst them. No, he tells them, it's many, many more of you. How many of you have lost a friend or a relative to heart disease, cancer, or another illness? And everyone raised their hand. And how do you know, he said, that the cures for those diseases didn't go up in smoke at Auschwitz or Treblinka? You don't know what you lost with the murder of six million Jews many of whom were amongst the leading doctors and scientists and artists and writers and thinkers in the world. With the murder of one and a half million Jewish children, do you have any idea what was lost to the future? Our answer is to look at the past. In his book, Genius and Anxiety, Norman, Norman Lebrecht gives a hundred-year list, some of whom we know immediately. Marx, Freud, Proust, Einstein, Kafka, Others have vanished from our collective memory, but their fingerprints are everywhere. Without Carl Landsteiner, there would be no blood transfusions and no surgery. Without Pearl Ehrlich, there would be no chemotherapy. Without Siegfried Marcus, there would be no cars. Without Rosalind Mar Frank, there would be no model of the DNA. Without Franklin Haber, there would be not enough food to sustain life on the earth. Without Albert Ballin, there would be no airports. Without Jean-Vierre Halevi, there would be no Grand Opera. Without Emmanuel Deutsch, there would be no State of Israel. And of course, there were more, there were much more. As we stand at the end of one year and the precipice of another, since none of this is assured, since none of this is guaranteed, since we are such a small, endangered people, Rosh Hashanah says that there is none of this without you. So what is there to lose? Perhaps the very thing that makes us all human. Perhaps the very idea that makes life beautiful. Because the Jews, we, you, and me, are a story of despair that becomes a story of hope. And what is life without hope? Shabbat Shalom, Shana Tovah.